Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we take a moment to really get to know the moon, our nightly companion that, yes, influences our tides, but also life on Earth and how we evolved, far more than it gets credit for. Rebecca Boyle, in her new book, Our Moon, takes us to the surface of the moon, alongside the Apollo 11 astronauts who described it as smelling like fireworks that have just gone off. Boyle traces the moon's role in evolution and its influence on our biology, how it dominated our way of telling time and our imaginations. We'll also get an update on NASA's next moon mission. So what do you appreciate about the moon or wonder about it? Tell us after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Rebecca Boyle has described herself as a lifelong moon enthusiast who wanted to be an astronaut and went to space camp before deciding she'd rather study it from afar. And her research did not disappoint. In addition to driving our tides, quote, the moon directs migrations, reproductions, the movements of the leaves of plants, and possibly the very blood in your veins, Boyle writes, in her new book called Our Moon. Rebecca Boyle is a columnist for Atlas Obscura and contributor to Scientific American, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, among others. She joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Do you want to say a little more about what the moon meant to you growing up? I was struck by your description of a kind of homesickness it brought up for you. Yeah, I remember being a kid and sitting on the floor of my elementary school library listening to a vinyl record recording of the Apollo tapes and just being kind of blown away and thinking, how is this? How could this be? These people are there on that other world. Like it blew my mind and it actually kind of still does, even though this is very distant in our cultural memory now, it still just kind of takes my breath away. And I never, I guess I never lost that kind of awe around the moon. And I feel like when I look at it, it seems so near, but it's so far. It is very far, I think, further than people actually realize. It's a quarter of a million miles away. But I feel this sort of longing for it. It feels something like I can just, just barely reach out and touch it, but it's so distant. It's, but it's such a part of who I am and I think a part of who we all are. Yeah. And those Apollo tapes, it took you there. It took you to the moon. And your book really does take us there. Your description of what the the moon looks and smells like from accounts by the people who were there. 
it gives us such a sensory experience of it. And I'm wondering if you could do that as well. Like, for example, what would one see when they land on the moon once they look out upon the moon's surface? It would be so stark. Everything would be such in sharp relief in a way that I think it's really hard to experience anywhere on Earth. I mean, the atmosphere here, anywhere you are, has water in it, has, you know, moisture, it has a thickness that kind of bends light and changes how it falls onto objects and onto yourself and how you perceive everything. On the moon, there would be no softening of your vision. It would be jagged and blocky and shadows are extraordinarily defined. Um, if you're landing on the moon, odds are it's gonna be daytime there because otherwise it would be impossible to see and almost absolute zero, <laughs> it'd be so cold. So anything that's ever landed there any humans that have ever landed there have landed during the lunar day. Um, so you actually would need an air conditioning system. It's really hot because there, again, is no atmosphere to sort of diffract the heat away from you. So you'd be just roasting in direct sunlight, essentially, in a vacuum. Um, wow. The astronauts and Apollo had air conditioners in their spacesuits, and they were really, really cold when they went back into the lunar landers to take off their helmets and kind of get comfortable. They froze because Otherwise, they would have roasted on the surface. Um, I think the overwhelming weirdness would be difficult. I think everything is so unlike anywhere on Earth that it's really hard to even imagine it's so unfamiliar. And I think one of the weirdest things would be the sound and really the lack thereof. You'd have to be in a spacesuit to survive. So you'd hear the beeping of your life support system and maybe the sound of your own breath, probably the sound of your own heartbeat, but that's it. There is no wind, there's no rain, there's no bird song, there are no crickets, <laughs> there's nothing. Um, it is as empty as a place can be. And I think that would be the overwhelming feeling that you would have. Yeah, it sounds incredibly overwhelming. And then also you talk about how the astronauts would have and did fall flat on their faces when they first <laughs> yeah. stepped out. Yeah, it, the moon's gravity is about one sixth of Earth's. And so you'd weigh like one sixth of what you weigh on, on Earth, which would be weird enough. I mean, it would be imagine like trying to walk in water, you know, in a swimming pool, you feel a little bit more buoyant. So it's just kind of hard to get your center of gravity but also the way the light is on the moon, it's sort of hard to orient yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in Apollo missions, when they're on longer and longer moonwalks, as they got more confident later into Apollo, they would ask astronauts in Houston, they would ask them, could you like go over there? We see on the video, there's this cool looking crater and this weird rock there. Can you like go get that? And they would often be like, no, that's like a huge steep incline. I don't want to fall. You know, I, I don't think I can make it down that crater. It's too steep. And actually, it would be like this really gentle slope, but it would look like a 45 degree angle because of the sunlight. It just played tricks on their minds. And it was really hard to just be able to situate yourself in physical space. So a lot of them just kind of fell over. And there's if you go on YouTube, there's some great videos. There's like great supercut of like astronauts just face planting basically on the lunar surface. <laughs> And talk a little bit about the quality of moon dust. The moon dust is probably one of the more annoying things about the moon. <laughs> it's this extremely fine kind of staticky powder. Imagine in your kitchen, you're trying to bake something and you've coated your 
the surface of your countertop with flour to, you know, prevent it from sticking. The flour gets everywhere. <laughs> it gets in every crack of your tile. It gets yeah. in every, you know, piece of fabric of whatever clothing you're wearing. That's what moon dust is like. But it's also really abrasive. Flour is soft. You know, if you if you breathe part of it in, you're going to sneeze and it's going to be annoying. But it's not going to feel weird. It's not going to hurt. Moon dust actually does hurt. And it drove the Apollo astronauts nuts when they were in their uh, lunar modules. They took their helmets off be able to be able to just eat and, and drink water and sort of live. And they were so irritated by the moon dust because on Earth, any kind of dust mostly comes from life, actually. And other dust that does not come from life is soft. It's beaten down by the ages. It's weathered by rain and wind and geology. Nothing on the moon weathers anything. <laughs> so even the dust is sharp, which is sort of hard to think about, but it would be really scratchy. It would be in your nose and in your eyes. It would be extremely irritating and probably kind of painful. And I think that's something people are going to have to contend with when we eventually go back there. They describe the astronauts what the moon smells like, which I imagine once they got back into their module, they could sense. What were the descriptions? A lot of them talked about something like fireworks or, you know, gunpowder after it's been ignited. Like if you've ever fired a, a firearm, there's kind of this afterburn, which is literally from the ignition of the gunpowder and the oxygen that's involved in that reaction. And that's probably why it smells that way, because it literally is oxygen being shattered by bombardment from the sun and cosmic rays. So the moon, you know, has nothing to protect it. It has this extremely tenuous exosphere, they call it, where there's like some atoms floating around, but it's not like an atmosphere. Nothing that can really sort of safeguard you <laughs> or anything else up there. And so that means that sunlight and radiation from the sun and radiation from cosmic sources is just bombarding it constantly and breaking apart the atoms that are inside the moon's dust, the regolith is what it's called. And so you're probably literally smelling the same thing as gunpowder, which is shattered oxygen mm. bonds and or, you know, fireworks. If you've ever been to a fireworks display on the 4th of July, maybe um, there's that kind of weird acrid, chemically metal smell. And that's what a lot of people described the moon dust like. Hmm. We're getting a description of what it's like to be on the moon from writer Rebecca Boyle, who's written a new book called Our Moon, and from the astronauts who made it real for us. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> That famous recording. Rebecca Boyle's book, Our Moon, is how Earth's celestial companion transformed the planet, guided evolution, and made us who we are. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What has the moon meant to you? Maybe you remember that moment and want to share your memory. What do you appreciate about the moon or wonder about it? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Uh, you can also give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. There's this last thing that you describe, which is this sort of sensation, a kind of etherealness. It, 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 you describe it almost as like you would never get a sixth sense, a sixth sense. <laughs> 
on the moon because that sixth sense would have to be around, you know, things, objects, people that would be surrounding us in some way, right? Yeah, I think almost anyone has had that sort of feeling some point in your life on Earth, whether you're in a car and you can just like feel the driver next to you is going to emerge or you're walking maybe alone in the woods, but there are birds around you, there are squirrels rustling in the leaves. You're in a crowded environment listening to your headphones, ignoring everybody else, but you feel the physical presence of other humans around you. That's just a universal human experience on this planet. You're never really alone anywhere you go on Earth. And on the moon, that's all you would be. You'd only have anyone who came there with you and you know, for the only people who've walked there so far, there were two of them at a time. So you'd have your one buddy <laughs> and that's it. And you would have this powerful sense of emptiness that I think would be very disconcerting in a way, especially if you're used to being in a family or a city or an apartment building or in a dorm or just walking on a trail with other people. There's never a moment on earth that you're really truly by yourself. Even if you're alone in the woods, there are creatures around you, there are life forms surrounding you. And on the moon, there's just rocks. <laughs> We're taking this moment to ponder the moon with Rebecca Boyle. And listeners, in addition to sharing with us what about the moon uh, you appreciate or wonder about, tell us if it's impacted your life. Does it play a role in any traditions you practice tied to your work or other aspects of your life in important ways? Again, 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord, so you can find us there at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Days pull you down just like a sinking ship Floating is getting harder I tread the water child and know that meanwhile rises the Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Mina Kim. Our moon formed roughly four and a half billion years ago and has, quote, conducted the symphony of life on Earth, according to science journalist Rebecca Boyle, whose new book is Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with Rebecca with your questions or comments about the moon. I'd love to ask you, Rebecca, you have these elements of your book which explores how the moon was made and how in turn the mood the moon made us. And I want to ask you about that first part. What do we understand about how the moon formed? What does the latest science say about this? I was surprised when I started working on this book how many questions people still have about this, actually. <laughs> um, it feels like the kind of thing we should just be pretty sure we know what, how that went down, but we actually don't. Um, we know that something horrible <laughs> had to have happened. Um, Early in the Earth's history, something probably the size of Mars thwacked into the early Earth, and both worlds were totally obliterated. And the result is the Moon and the Earth that we have now. We know that based on the size of the Moon, how far away it is now, how quickly it's receding from us. The Moon actually is leaving us all the time. Um, and how quickly we're both spinning. You can kind of trace that back to understand that at one point they were one, they were a whole. Um, but we don't really know exactly how that all happened. And it's only in the last couple of years that people have started putting a little finer point on the details of that very consequential day. Um, partly this is because when Apollo astronauts brought rocks home, they first, scientists looked at them and said, well, the moon's like different. Here's some strange rocks or here's rocks that look like Earth rocks, but they look different physically, but they're different enough that the moon is probably some other body that like arrived here um, after some giant impact. And then later, um, in the early 2000s, scientists started remeasuring those rocks when they had more sophisticated instruments and just better techniques in the modern era. And then they realized Actually, the moon rocks are pretty much identical to Earth rocks, which is weird because anything that forms oh. around the sun has this kind of distinct chemical fingerprint. Um, this is based on just the at like literally the atoms, <laughs> the ratio of atoms in the rocks. This is very like microscopic level detail. But something like Mars has really distinct isotopes, which are just variants of atoms of something like oxygen, for instance. You can look at a Mars rock and study its oxygen, and you can know it's for sure from Mars and not Earth. And that's because of where they form around the sun, the way that these things sort of cool and combine and coalesce when planets are made. But the moon rocks are the same as Earth rocks, which means they form in the same place at the same time. And very strange things would have had to happen for that to be the case, um, which really means the moon is a part of Earth. And it was shorn from our planet at some point. We don't exactly know how that happened or how they both recombined and mixed so thoroughly. Um, but this is a very cutting edge question right now in planetary science. So essentially, the debris from that impact, they believe, must have recollected or recombined in a way to then begin orbiting around Earth and Earth around Moon. <laughs> yeah. Is that... Yeah. I mean, the, the thought is that, you know, one of the theories that I read about in the book that is, is a little more recent is that this horrible thing <laughs> happened, this calamity visited our baby planet and just completely liquefied it. And the same mm -hmm. happened to the impactor. And both of these things were just like splattered apart. And there was this cloud of vapor, vaporized rock that just was this weird structure. And within that structure, 
there's all this turbulence and and violent movement, and somehow these two things recoalesced. Like imagine throwing a egg into a pot of boiling water, <laughs> and you end up with a poached egg. You know, that's sort of the thought is that in this cloud of violence, <laughs> this hellscape, these two distinct worlds gradually recombined and resulted in the two worlds we have now. There's also a relatively recent theory that's also in the book that talks about the remains of this impactor, which we call Theia, which is the the Greek mother of Selene, the moon in Greek mythology. So the, the impactor is called Theia because it gives birth to the moon. But really, it gives birth to the Earth as well, I, I would argue. And some scientists have been looking at these strange characteristics within Earth's mantle that no one can really explain. <laughs> there are these weird igneous provinces inside Earth. And one theory is that they're like subducted continental plates that, you know, of the same type that cause earthquakes that sort of sink inside the Earth and fall on, do- on top of each other. But another theory is that they are the remains of Theia, that somehow Earth consumed the shattered pieces of this impactor, and mm. it is now a part of our planet from within. Um. Well, listener Bastian writes, our oldest son, now 16, uttered mama as his first word, of course. His second word, spoken confidently and while sitting on my arm and pointing up into the sky, was moon. Mm. The two O's shortened to more of a U sound. Oh, that's kind of like my kid, actually. How she said moon for the first time was like moon. Anyway, why and how is still a mystery to me, but I think it shows that even from our earliest age, we all intrinsically understand the significance of that magical sphere in the sky. Oh, thanks, Bastion. Let me go to caller Stephen in San Francisco next. Stephen, you're on. Yes, back in the 1960s, uh, I was at the Harvard College Observatory. I was a scientist there uh, working on various satellite instruments. And one of my collaborators did uh, reflectivity measure, radar reflection measurements off the moon and calculated that there would be water uh, subsurface on the moon, ice. And they did that by measuring various types of reflection and conductivity. And uh, so... Probably if when we returned to the moon, uh, we did some drilling, we would probably find uh, subsurface ice. You know, we know that meteors contain uh, often uh, quite a bit of ice. And uh, there's predictions that much of the seas on Earth was formed by that collision Mm -hmm. of these ice objects. So it's not uh, too difficult to believe that uh, we would be able to find some significant amount of uh, subsurface uh, water. Uh, You are an expert, Stephen, a physicist? I'm a physicist. Uh, I'm a retired senior scientist from Lockheed. Uh, My last project was building instruments, uh, the coronagraph for the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, I also worked on the repair of the Hubble uh, Space Telescope back in the uh, early 80s. I've been on a number of programs. (laughs) Well, thanks for calling in, Stephen. I I appreciate it. And I I also appreciate your comment about about water, because you write about this, Rebecca. Talk a little bit about why they believe water is there and what role it plays in wanting to go back to the moon. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned this, because there is a lot of evidence that the moon has copious water. And it does go back to Apollo. 
Um, the most recent observations are from the early 2000s, the mid-2000s, I guess. The U.S. and India both had experiments in around 2008, 2009 that were designed to look for lunar water because of these early indications that there was something there. And they both found evidence of it. And it's not water like you would imagine on Earth. <laughs> There's no lakes, even though the the dark spots on the moon we call maria, which is actually the Latin word for seas, because people did think they were oceans initially, but they're not. <laughs> they're just lava plains that have cooled. And there is not any visible evident water. It's probably locked in the regolith itself, or it's buried underneath the surface of the regolith in ices. And it's possibly in the bottoms of permanently shadowed craters, which are usually found at the poles. This is like an area where the angle of sunlight never hits the bottom of the crater. So if there is any ice, primordial ice, from the early solar system, it's still just hanging out there. And in theory, we could go get it and either use it just directly or we could refine it, breaking up the hydrogen and oxygen into rocket fuel. That's one reason why people are interested in going back to look for water, because if we're going to stay on the moon or if we're going to use the moon as a jumping off point for Mars or an asteroid or somewhere else, it would be really handy to not have to bring all your fuel with you and basically go to a depot somewhere <laughs> that has some. And that's yeah. one vision people have for the moon. Well, when will we next go to the moon? Because there were headlines last week about NASA's Artemis program, you know, its plan for long-term exploration of the moon, and mainly that it's being delayed. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a lot going on, and it's a lot, it's constantly changing. Um, so yeah, NASA last week announced another delay for its Artemis II mission, which is the first crewed uh, moon mission in more than 50 years, since Apollo 17 in 1972. And this mission will just involve three or four astronauts going around the moon and back. They're not going to land. But it's a very long mission. It's the way that they've designed this new orbit for Artemis takes like a week to get there. And um, then they come back. And then Artemis III would be the first crewed landing since Apollo 17. And that's no earlier than September of 2026 now. Mm. And I think it's this is a reflection of a few things. One is that you know, it's it's a cliche, but it's true. Space is hard. <laughs> it's really difficult to get there. And I hear a lot from people who are like, well, we did it already. Like, it's, Apollo was 50 years ago. Come on. And I'm like, yeah, technology is, is better now. We've learned a lot. We have a lot more advanced machinery and rockets, but the physics hasn't changed. It's still hard. It's far away. You have to go to these incredible speeds to get off Earth and away from Earth's gravity and then come back down to a stop. You know, it's difficult. And I think that's just a reflection of the fact that it's difficult. Also, NASA's contracting with private companies more now. Um, and one of them, SpaceX, is designing the lander system that will take humans back to the moon. And this is the Starship rocket. And they've had a few issues with it. And there's been a few FAA regulatory issues. And so just acknowledging that their launch you know, service provider has had some problems. NASA is sort of slowing down their own timeline to help people get there safely. Well, Jim Brights, I was eight years old at the time of the moon landing. Thunderstorms rolled through my neighborhood, knocking out the power. An engineer neighbor brought over a tiny black and white TV and rigged it up to a car battery. Many friends gathered on my parents' screened-in porch that late evening. We watched the astounding event together. 
Um, Robert writes, why are there more resources invested towards understanding the moon and space and relatively fewer resources focused on understanding our own oceans upon which our survival depends? What do you think about how Robert is feeling about this? I hear that a lot. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that NASA's budget overall is a fraction of a percent of the entire you know, United States federal budget. And NASA itself does an incredible amount of research on our oceans. They put up satellites that study ocean nutrients, ocean temperatures, cloud cover, the hydrologic cycle. We've, we've known more about our oceans in the last 50 years, thanks to the satellite era, than you know the entire human history up to that point. And I think that's just worth keeping in mind. You know, space is a worthy endeavor in its own right, in my opinion. But I think it also really is important in connecting us to our home planet. And I think viewing Earth from space, using NASA funding, NASA technology to understand Earth from space, from a distance, is invaluable. I don't think it's something you can put a price tag on. In addition to water, are we in, interested in, in sort of other minerals and sort of mining the moon as well? Yeah, this is something you hear a lot from some of these commercial lunar um, companies. One launched last week, and it did not. It's not going to make it to the moon through no fault of really anyone but fate, <laughs> I guess. Um, this is the Astrobotic Peregrine Lander. This was going to be the first privately built and privately designed lunar lander. They have used a lot of NASA funding, and NASA was putting experiments on this thing, but. Um, it was the first kind of private enterprise to go to the moon. And it's one of the things that's intended to sort of provide fertilization or to seed a new lunar economy that people keep talking about. And that would eventually lead to things like resource extraction, which is basically mining or, you know, refining material. There are projects that would look at getting the water like we talked about or even doing things like sintering together the regolith into some kind of form of lunar concrete to build a landing pad or to build you know, a road or something that you could end up using to create an eventual base or a science resource station. Um, some of the more further afield things are like extracting helium-3, which is this volatile form of helium that could be used to power a nuclear reactor. But I think some of those things are, are still very conceptual and probably a little further afield than, than people think. Well, you have expressed concern or just questions around how a lot of different countries and private corporations are, are planning moon missions and that they are focusing on the same regions. Why is that problematic? Why is there potential for tension around that? Yeah, this is interesting because there are a lot of ways to think about this. And one goes back to the really only sort of internationally accepted framework that we have for space, which is the Outer Space Treaty, which dates to the Cold War. It's from 1967 and it's pretty out of date. Um, not every country is a signatory to it, but it's basically the only guidepost that we have to figure out how we're going to use space as a planet and use it for peace, for, for peaceful purposes, at least, you know, but one hopes. And one of the provisions in there is that you can't mess with somebody else's stuff. <laughs> so, you know, if you have uh, one country has put up a lander or a scientific experiment or even a base or something, you know, another country can't just like go land next to it and mess around with it. 
And because we know that landing on the moon is a violent enterprise, you know, again, because of the lack of atmosphere, the low gravity, like landing requires using reverse rockets to like push yourself to a stop. So it kicks up a lot of the regolith. It it's, spreads it around. It scours anything around it like a Brillo pad. And if you land next to somebody else's base or equipment, you're probably going to mess it up. And because that's not allowed under the Outer Space Treaty, you really can't land next to somebody else's equipment, which inherently means that anything up there is sort of like staking a claim. You know, if, if you're going to put up a rover or a permanent sort of landing pad or solar panels that are going to generate power, you're kind of staking a claim to that area, that mm. part of the moon's surface. So this moon that we sort of all feel is our moon, like the title of your book, that we all share, could almost become this carved up thing where different nations have claims to different parts of it. And I guess raises that question of this shared resource for us all. Yeah, I think we just need to be a little bit more mindful about that as we sort of rush back there. And there are examples of how this can be done well. Antarctica is one. You know, we've kind of decided globally that it's special. We can all go there. Many countries have science resource stations there. They do all kinds of research. They do all kinds of experiments. There's also tourism. It's expensive. <laughs> it's difficult. You have to be really well prepared and trained and equipped to do it, to go. And I think that's how we can think about the moon. You know, it's I'm not saying we shouldn't go. I think we should go, actually. I think it's really important to go. But I think that when we go, we need to be thoughtful about why mm -hmm. and more curious about why and hopefully less greedy than we've been in the history of uh, our experience on Earth. And just bear in mind that it is for everyone. It doesn't belong to any country. It doesn't belong to any culture or company. It's everyone's, which means it belongs to no one. And we need to be thoughtful about that. Well, Noel on Discord writes, The Police's Walking on the Moon is a great moon-related song. The bass and guitar convey the loneliness of the lunar landscape. Listeners, if you want to share your favorite song or text about the moon, feel free, or also your questions or comments about it as well. We're talking with, with Rebecca Boyle, who's a contributing editor to Scientific American, a contributing writer to Quanta Magazine and The Atlantic, among others, a columnist for Alice Obscura, and her new book is called Our Moon. How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking this moment to ponder the moon, the science of its formation and influence on Earth and its role in our lives throughout human history and today with Rebecca Boyle, science journalist and author of Our Moon. And let me go to caller Eid in Berkeley. Hi, Eid. You're on. Hi. Good morning. So I was privileged to teach astronomy at Cal and National University for three, four decades, actually. I'd just like to make a couple of points. Number one, our beautiful moon is leaving us. It is leaving us. It took quite a while, but Earth will eventually become moonless. Second point I'd like to make also that interests your audience, that beam of light that hit your forehead right now from the sun takes eight minutes to come to our face, but takes on the average 70,000 years from the center of the sun to the surface of the sun. Third point I'd like to make very quickly, the nearest star to us, and actually let's say nearest planet to us, Proxima Centauri, is very much similar to Earth. It's beautiful. But you know how far it is? It's about four, a little bit over 4.18 light year away. It will take you 55 million years if you drive your car to that closest planet, actually closest star system to us. It's a beautiful subject that I can never yeah. end up talking and listening to it. Well, so I like well, to, uh, you to, to hear your, your guests mention Yeah, well, I, I love hearing those, Earth, the, yeah, uh, those points that you are making, especially that one that you also want to dig into more, which is this idea that the moon is actually getting further o- farther away from us. Is that right, Rebecca? Yeah, if you're talking about driving, you know, highway speeds to Proxima Centauri, how long that would take, if you could do that to the moon... It would take you about six months <laughs> to get there. Um, you have to go a lot faster than that to escape Earth's gravity. But yeah, if you could like imagine driving your car at you know seventy miles an hour continuously without any brakes, it would take you almost six months to get to the moon. Um, that's one way of thinking about how very far away it actually is. And yeah, it will be even farther away in the future. It's spiraling away from us roughly at the rate at which your fingernails grow. So it's not a lot over the course of a year or even, you know, a thousand years or a thousand millennia, but eventually it will be gone. (laughs) And eventually um, it will be so far away that it will no longer be able to block the sun entirely. And so we will no longer have total solar eclipses like we're about to experience again here in the U.S. in April. Fascinating. Um, Could you also, well, I've been talking about how you have trace the moon's role in guiding evolution. And I'd love to get into that a little bit. The moon, of course, controls our tides. Uh, Can you talk about how that works, but also how it's affected the evolution of our species? Yeah, and um, this actually does go to the previous question about how the moon is receding from us. That's how I first came to this question, because I learned about this study from 400 million years ago. Well, the fossils are that old. (laughs) The study was from 2019. But in this study, some scientists looked at coral fossils that you can look at coral growth rings, similarly, similar to like tree rings, where you can determine, you know, the age of an organism or maybe things about its environment by looking at these tree rings. The same is true for corals. And they figured out that 400 million years ago, the day was about 20 hours long because the moon was closer. And as the moon is leaving, 
the Earth's day is lengthening. So now it's about 24 hours long. But 400 million years ago, when life was first emerging in the oceans, it was shorter. And I just wondered about that and thought if the moon was closer and Earth's day was shorter, probably the tide was a lot more extreme. And it turns out that's true. And this is true in areas where we know that fish began emerging onto land. So I started looking into this and realized that there's this really powerful connection between tidal cycles and these tetrapods that are evolving to live on land in the Devonian period, which is about 320 million years ago. And this is the age of fishes, the Devonian. This is when the oceans are teeming with all kinds of you know, strange life forms that swim and crawl around in the shallows. And at this time, Pangaea is beginning to form. So the supercontinent that gives rise to the dinosaurs, that's kind of the famous, you know, landmass, is not forming yet, but it's starting to. So these ocean basins are closing, and which gives even more extreme tidal shifts. So mm -hmm. in several areas on Earth, you have these inlets where the tide changes by like 80 feet every five hours or so, which is a huge difference. You know, if you're a fish and you're swimming around in the shallows, the water is flying away from you, basically. And you better either get back to it quickly or learn to breathe the air or learn to move yourself across the sand. Yes. And the fish that were able to do this are the ones that pass on their genetic material and lead to the lineage that becomes all of us, all of the terrestrial backboned animals. Wow. Let me go to Ben in Sacramento. Ben, thanks for waiting. You're on. Oh, hi. Uh, my question is, uh, why is the why is the moon a sphere? If uh, there was a collision and a chunk of Earth flew into the air, it would be irregular. And uh, second is, why is there no scar on Earth uh, where that uh, chunk came from? Ooh, great questions. Actually, listener Malcolm has a similar one in the sense of I've often wondered why so many of the significant objects in the cosmos are spherical. I've heard that it's due to their internal gravity, but I don't think that's an adequate answer. <laughs> well, the answer is twofold. And yes, it is due to their internal gravity. This is one of the things that scientists use to define a planet. You have to be large enough to have enough self-gravity to make yourself round, to make yourself whole. But the real answer is that they're not <laughs> spherical. Um, these things are like slightly bulgy, um, <laughs> including the Earth. And this is because of how they spin. You know, as imagine, you know, an ice skater spinning as she's skating and you draw your arms in and draw your arms out. This changes your angular momentum, which is a physical concept that's hard to describe. But essentially, it, it just talks about how your shape affects your rotation and how your rotation can affect your shape. So the short answer is that they're actually not perfectly spherical. <laughs> they're all a little bulgy. And the moon is not uniform. The moon's far side is very different from its near side. It is a sphere in our sky and it's round, but the two sides of the moon are actually very different. And this is thought to be a result of maybe its formation, its tidal locking to Earth, where it shows the same face to us all the time. Maybe its proximity to Earth, like Earth when it was molten, kept the moon warm longer and it differentiated in this sort of weird way. Um, but yeah, it's it's the moon is actually very big and it does have enough self-gravity to become a sphere. The reason that there is no scar of this day is yeah. that everything was so completely destroyed. There wasn't anything to scar. It's 
I mean, imagine, you know, it's it's not like you're sitting at a potter's wheel and your 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 wheel is spinning and your wet clay is there and you punch your bowl <laughs> and now it's kind of splatted and now you've got a weird shape on your bowl as it's spinning around on your potter's wheel. That's not really what happened. It's more like you shatter the entire thing into dust and there is no remnant of that early earth anymore. So there's there's no way for it to have scarred it. It was it was totally obliterated. Wow. Um, you know, you write about how, you know, the earth, the moon, that they have played a significant role in controlling life and their formation and so on. But the other thing that you really spend time contemplating is how it has shepherded the human mind through what you describe as a spectacular journey of thought, wonder, power, knowledge, and myth. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that aspect of it a little bit. Um, You've talked about the the role the moon has played in our ability to tell time and then the sort of human developments that emerged from that ability yeah. and so on. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about how the moon sort of looms large in the human imagination and feel free if you'd like to talk about time. I was so surprised to learn that it's so much more than time. I think I started by understanding how the moon affected our concept of time because you know even right now a month we have that's that's from the moon that's from the word month it's an old english word we divide time according to the lunar cycle we always have and i tried to figure out how that originated and, and i was looking for some of the oldest artifacts that tell the story of that relationship that we've developed with the moon and timekeeping and as i found some of these artifacts and and the places and the cultures that they're located I sort of realized that this sense of time that we got from the moon really enabled us to create our world. I think orienting ourselves in time is a uniquely human ability, as far as we know. I mean, animals can plan by like squirreling away, you know, nuts and things like that. But it's not the same thing as saying, well, in four moons from now, I'm going to go on vacation, you know, (laughs) the way that humans do, even in modern life. And I think that was a really transformative event when people figured out how to do that and to mentally leap around in time. The moon is the primary way they could do this. And once people did that, you know, once you create a calendar, essentially, which also comes from the use of the moon, it comes from the Roman word calends, which was the middle of the lunar cycle. Um, Once you do that, you can start planning your whole society. Oh, this is when we're going to be harvesting our crops. This is when the salmon are going to be making their run and we can go hunt, you know, all these things that people use to plan. And whoever could do that, whoever was in sort of charge of that, ends up becoming really powerful. And early societies align themselves around people who figured out these rhythms. And I think that was a way more profound relationship than I expected. I didn't think it would be I set out to say, like, this is an appreciation, you know, I'm excited about what the moon has done. And I came away convinced that it has done everything that we have ever done for ourselves. It has been responsible for all of these giant leaps that we have made as a species. And I think it's probably not gotten enough credit for originating things like religion and science and philosophy and the way we imagine ourselves in the universe. We're hearing from you, our listeners, about what the moon means to you, your questions about it, even your favorite songs or texts about the moon. Patty writes, here's my favorite moon-related poem. It's from Martin Pippin in the Daisy Field by Eleanor Farjan 
The moon, the lovely moon, when the town's asleep in all her silver beauty, wanders down the steep, wanders down the steep, unseen by you and me in all her silver beauty to walk upon the sea. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Patty. Patty sharing that with Rebecca Boyle, science journalist and author of Our Moon, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Seth in Fairfax. Hi, Seth, you're on. Um, hi, I'm enjoying the show. I have a question about the moon and the high tides. Uh, I'm curious why there are two high tides in a 24-hour period, assuming that I could think the moon would account for one of them, but why is there another one 12 hours later? Oh, I love this question because it's so hard to understand. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the tide is so complicated. Like, it's all lies, what you've been told, basically. <laughs> Everything that you've ever learned about the tide is, like, totally simplified. Um, to the point of being totally wrong. And I did not expect that either. <laughs> the reason that there are two high and two low tides is because the moon's gravity creates a bulge on both sides of Earth. So it's pulling on us, you know, but Earth is spinning at the same time. And so as the moon is pulling on one ocean, say it's, you know, over the Pacific as Earth is rotating, the Atlantic sort of also stretches out. <laughs> To, to be a very simplified explanation. Um, and so, yeah, you, you have two high and two low tides a day because the the tidal effect is a global effect and the Earth is rotating. So the location of the high and low tide also moves around as the moon moves around the Earth. And it's very complicated physics <laughs> that I try to explain a little bit in the, a footnote because I didn't want people's eyes to bleed. <laughs> Well, let me thank Seth for the question. Okay, I have another one. Can you talk about why people connect the full moon with erratic behavior? I think this just goes back to the earliest, you know, human culture. Like the moon, it's easy to forget now in modern life how important the moon was for all of human history. It's only been 150 years being generous that we've had lighting at night. I mean, until Edison invented the light bulb, you had fire, you had maybe some gas lamps, and you had the moon. So it was an incredibly bright, incredibly powerful luminary. People used it to be able to cover ground at night, to travel, to be able to hunt, you know, to be able to see in their homes in the evening. And I think we've, we've kind of forgotten how bright it can be when we have, we just turn on a light bulb, it doesn't matter as much anymore. Because it was so prominent, it's, obvious. It's it's sort of there all the time. It's something you can draw a connection to. And I think there's some level at which this is actually not wrong. I think there's a lot of medical literature in the last few years looking at things like episodes of bipolar mania are correlated with full moon cycles. This might be because it's harder to go to sleep when the moon is really bright in your window, you know, but there are like medical studies that show this direct relationship. And there are evidence that it, it affects things like aneurysm or stroke, which is potentially playing a role in the way that your blood is moving through your body. There may be some gravitational signal that we can't really tease out, but that doesn't mean it's not real. I think that there's a cultural understanding of, of the moon's role in our lives, and I think there's a physiological understanding of it as well. And sometimes those things are very far apart, but I think they're probably not as far apart as um, one might imagine. And lunar is sort of the base of words like lunacy and lunatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, lunatic asylums, you know, the sort of like 
institutions that people were put into when they were suffering from mental illness, you know, yeah, it's literally derived from the moon. People very much believed that the moon was responsible for these erratic behaviors. But I think, you know, ask any like emergency department nurse and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, it's busy on a full moon or like, oh, it's full moon. People are going nuts out there. I think some of that is sort of myth. Some of that is just culture. Some of it probably isn't too far off base. <laughs> well, Elle tweets, a good moon-related song is Moon Rocks from Talking Heads and their album Speaking in Tongues. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Elle. Another listener writes, we could make a whole moon playlist off of this. Oh, I made one. I have oh, a Spotify you? playlist. Yeah, and I, I very carefully curated all the songs um, according to the chapters of my book. So if Amazing. you go on Spotify and search Our Moon Playlist, I did. I actually did that. That's how extra I am. That's awesome. The listener writes, The formation of Earth and the moon after they were pulverized reminds me of a chrysalis. The caterpillar dissolves into goo, then reforms into a butterfly. Wow, our listeners are so I poetic today. I think they're being influenced by the moon. Anyway, um, Really quick, just one last point, which you talk about, and, and this comes up a lot, like natural phenomena, you know, become objects of study. Um, they also become objects of sort of divine worship as well. But you sort of decided that, you know what, it's actually the divine worship that may have given rise, or maybe you have quoted scientists who felt this way, to what we decide to study scientifically. Do you want us to just say a quick note about that connection? Because it was kind of fascinating. Yeah, this is one of the main things that surprised me in writing this book was that people who were really devoted to the moon for religious reasons, you know, this is 2,500 years ago and up to 1,000 years ago um, in in the cultures that were in Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq and Iran. And they were really devoted to the moon for devotional practices. They believed that it had a role in their health, especially like skin disorders. They believe that kingly power derived from its divine grace. And so they really carefully tracked the moon and the sun and the planets and the constellations and how they all related to each other. And that created this record, this unbelievably detailed record of astronomy that I think gave us the foundations of modern science. Well, thank you so much for giving us the foundations for really appreciating the moon in new ways, Rebecca. It's been Thanks really so a pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Rebecca Boyle's book is called Our Moon. My thanks to Caroline Smith and Emiko Oda for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.